Brick Moon Fiction presents A Wedding Night at Motel 1941 by Sui Davis Okungwa. It's not a wedding. Not really. I mean, there is a girl. Ufoma's dress is of white lace, knee-length, and rumpled because there wasn't enough time to press it. Between sitting on the tailor's head in her shop while she sewed the last glitter stones onto the lace and the 80-kilometer drive from Ushishi to Motel 1941, we only had time to pick up the others before we set off. There is a bouquet of plastic flowers. There are arrangements for adjoining. Even if Motel 1941 is like five rooms max, we picked it as our prep venue because it's neither too far from the area court in Mekumnili nor the airport in Mina, which is like the only sign of civilization on a long stretch of dry, wild weeds that is the Mina Zungeru Highway. We needed to be close enough to the city to shop for more supplies if we needed to. Food may or may not be a sure thing, but drinks are definitely accounted for. We spent half the time on the trip up drinking and sniffing some new films that Chisum got us, and literally checked into the hotel oblivious and useless. I can't remember if we locked the bus, who moved our stuff into our room, what the receptionist looked like, or what lies outside the motel besides the dirt road leading back to the Minazungeru Highway and the large expanse of silty sand in all directions. There is a groom and a bride. There are guests, five of us and the couple. That's eight in total. Or, it should be eight. But at midnight, as I opened the door to the shared toilet and bath, my thoughts fixated on the bite of pee between my thighs and the headache split in my skull. I find the groom and his Caucasian groomsmen there. Manko is sitting on the toilet, a line on his neck pouring blood and a large dent in the side of his head matting his medium calls onto his scalp. Clive, his groomsman, is knee-deep in his own blood, pouring from a similar line on his neck, his bare chest painted in red jellyfish tentacles splayed out on marble. His mouth is over the groom's limp dick, teeth shut firmly over it. Their lips have been cut away and their blood-red grins are the last thing I see before I pass out. I awake to loud angry voices, stifled sobbing, and a very bad taste in the back of my throat. I'm suddenly aware of the fact that I have wet myself. I'm also very cold, lying there on the tiled floor. I wonder why no one moved me all this time. Fuck, 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 is what someone keeps saying, and then the light is too bright for my eyes. I can't sense anything at all. And I wonder if this is how I used to sleepwalk like a fool when I was a kid, having absolutely no idea what I was doing. Once, I unlocked my parents' front door and walked all the way out of the compound. My father found me down the street in my pajamas, my fingertips frozen solid by the Hamilton cold. I count to ten and open my eyes. Everything swirls. Belinda is awake, a male voice says, and then someone is by my side, lifting my wrist checking my pulse, lifting my eyelids. When the face comes into focus, it's Dr. Kenny, his face lined with panic. He was supposed to be like the best man, not kneeling over a patient while two dead bodies rot in the loo. I'm fine, I managed to say, brushing his arms off and rising into a sitting position. He steps away gingerly. I see that I have in fact been moved. We are in the motel lobby, a general sitting area arranged like a living room with couches, a coffee table, handcrafted wooden sculptures, and paintings. The air conditioner is on full blast, and that explains the ache in my joints and the needles in my skin. 
It also explains why the blood on my elbow and nightshirt is flaky. Are you okay? Dr. Kenny is looking into my face intensely, like I'm a specimen. Thing is, I appreciate the care, but Dr. Kenny is also kind of a perv. Let him not think I've forgotten his hand lingering too close to my thigh or my side boob when we sat next to each other in the bus on the way here. Him feigning being tipsy and me knowing he was very much aware of his deeds. From the look of things, he must have been the one who carried me from the restroom, and I try not to think about what he might have done while doing that. My head is banging, is all I can say, while I'm busy thinking. Why, oh why, did I ever agree to come to this stupid wedding? You'll be fine, Dr. Kenny says. You probably have a migraine from the hangover and you may have hit your head. I checked you and didn't see any injuries, so besides shock, you should be okay. Just breathe and don't make any sudden movements, okay? Fuck, 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 Inanna says, first pacing, then plumping into a couch. Fuck! Can you, like, cool it for a minute? Dr. Kenny says. Stop panicking all of us more. Cool it, Inanna says, tying and retying her head wrap as she speaks. Are you, like, okay? Two people are dead in that restroom. Dead, though. And we're the only people in the motel in the middle of nowhere. Clive is white, for God's sake. When the police come, all they'll see is a dead white guy and we're done. Well, now that she says it like that, we realize we are fucked. Even Ufoma stops crying for a while and just stares. How did this happen? Inanna says. How did it happen and no one heard anything? Not even a single person. I was drunk and you guys were high, Dr. Kenny says. Ufoma woke up under the bed, for God's sake. How would we hear anything with all of us in space? What about the hotel staff? I ask. There's no one in the hotel apart from us, Dr. Kenny says. They ran. Inanna grits her teeth. They ran because they did it and they want to frame us. Our phone, Sunka? I ask. Call somebody for God's sake. There's no network, Nana says. Don't you think that's literally the first thing we tried while you were taking a beauty sleep? Fuck you, Inanna. I say, fuck you. Ufoma, sitting in the corner, resumes her sobbing. Dr. Kenny runs to sit by her and hold her in his arms, shushing quietly. I look at her and I'm not sure what to feel. Technically, she blackmailed me into coming for this wedding, this mockery of a union. This bitch and her useless handbag Inanna twisted my arm, invoking some stupid old favor because the registry insisted on five attendees minimum, since neither the groom nor bride was coming with family members. I could have been back in Mina, chilling with Netflix or something, but this idiot brought me here to either die or go to prison. And she has the guts to sit down there and cry because the idiot she tried to trick into marrying her by faking a pregnancy is dead. I'm so sorry for your loss, Ufoma, I say to her. I know how you must be feeling. She looks at me with those pretty, dull eyes, now vacant. Ufoma has always been the pretty babe. Everyone pretty much wanted a piece of her during camp. But it was Manko, light-skinned and rich pretty boy, who nabbed her. Or should I say, whom she nabbed because I never really saw a core Fulani boy like him chasing after some plump chick from the south like her. They used to call them black and yellow in camp. And even after camp, when they started fucking and she was living in the boys' quarters of one of the apartments in Mina, his father flung in his direction. But what kind of sick person does this? Dr. Kenny says, his brow furrowed in thought. 
massaging Ufama's midriff, way too close to her underboob, in my opinion. Isn't it obvious, Inanna says. This is a ritual killer motel. Haven't you heard of them? They kill people, take their lips for rituals, then frame the guests. Nah, I won't jump to conclusions per se, Dr. Kenny says. But that arrangement in the room? Kind of sick and disturbing, and no normal person would do that. Ufama's head snaps up at this. Her face has transformed from weeping bride to black panther. No one speaks for a beat. I'm not sure if it's because no one wants to upset Ufoma more by suggesting her husband-to-be was closeted gay and cheating on her while he was killed, or because the alternative is scarier, that the sadistic psychos who murdered them sliced off their lips, then set forth to stage them in that morbid, perverted way. Where's Chisum? I ask, to break the heavy silence. In the bathroom, Inanna says. She's just sitting there, staring at them too. I don't even know why you brought her over, man. She's always high. Don't you think we should be all together at this time? I say. Shouldn't no one be left alone? I get blank stares from Ufoma and Inanna. Dr. Kenny sighs. I'll go get her, he says. No, I say, rising, swaying. I might not be at my best, but I don't trust Dr. Kenny with a woman who isn't in her right senses. I'll go. Besides, I need to change out of this urine shorts anyway. Chisom is sitting on the floor, her wild dreads like a black spider web over her face. She sits there, looking into the open door of the restroom, smoking. The stench of weed and blood rests heavy in the air. Chisom, I say. She blows another cloud without looking at me. I inch towards the door, just enough that the room's contents are out of sight the memory of passing out still very fresh. Once I spot the blood on the floor, I cannot handle it anymore. I shut my eyes, feel across the doorway, and pull the door closed. We're dead, Abby, Chisom says. We're dead, all of us. I'm not sure if it's the ganja speaking, or the girl contemplating the mortality of the people in the bathroom and the ensuing end of our lives come morning, but the weight of her statement falls heavy on me, so much that I just go and sit by her instead. She puffs and passes to me, the blunt looking very thin in her pudgy fingers. I puff, and the heat is a welcome thing on my dry, cracked lips, the sweet, piney tang on my palate like an old friend. But then I remember what lies behind those doors, and I know we cannot smoke away our problems and must stay sharp and top of mind. We need to stay together in the lobby, I tell her, passing back the blunt and spitting the smoke like that will change anything. You smell like piss, she says. I chuckle. For real though, everyone needs to be safe until we know what to do next. Chisholm shrugs, and that's as much of an agreement as I'll get. I still have to hold out a hand to her to get her to move though. She's too heavy for me, so I give up upset two heaves and leave her to get up as slowly as she pleases. Down the hallway, I stop by our room to change into another pair of shorts. I realize they're ripped alongside the bloodstains from my fainting, and I wonder if Dr. Kenny ripped them for sinister purposes. The lobby remains as gloomy as I left it. Ufoma has stopped crying, but sits with her head bowed in the corner, the weave on which we prepared for her wedding making a curtain around her face. Dr. Kenny is whispering in her ear. She some snorts when she sees them. Apparently, I'm not the only one who notices Dr. Creepy. Chisum goes over and hands Ufoma a blunt. 
buttoned Dr. Kenny off. Ifoma puffs and the smoke goes into her hair. So, what now? Inanna says, resuming her pacing. Dr. Kenny rises. Okay, first, we all have to calm the fuck down. He points to Inanna. Sit. She glares at him. Sit, Inanna, and stop being an idiot. She grumbles and sits. Okay, Dr. Kenny says. First, let's try to put together a good timeline of events, okay? We left Wishishi when? Around 5pm yesterday, I say. That's when you drove into our copper's lodge. Right. And then we picked you girls up and came here. A beat passes in silence. Is that all? Dr. Kenny says. Does anyone remember anything else? I remember I was drinking in the bus, Inanna says. And sniffing those new fumes I got, eh? Chisholm says. Does anyone remember arriving here? I ask. Or what the receptionist or barman looked like? We look at one another. Fuck, Inanna says. These guys must have known we were passed out. They completely fucked us. How do you know it's them, though? Chisum asks. We turn to her as one. I mean, it could be anyone, she says, then puffs and blows as if she's just said the most regular thing. What the fuck does that mean? Inanna asks. Who can vouch for the whereabouts of any other person aside themselves? Chisum asks. Show hands. No one moves. I mean, Chisum resumes, puffing. Unless I'm stupid, a receptionist and barman cannot have overpowered two fully grown men alone without making any noise or leaving behind any signs of major struggle. Someone helped them, and that person is either still here or not. Silence. Even Ufoma has come out of her coma and looked up. So, what are you saying? Ufoma speaks for the first time, her voice raspy and her vowels lined with phlegm. Someone here killed my husband? Well, Chisholm says, inhales and blows. I think what she's saying, Dr. Kenny says, hands akimbo and head down, is that there's one or two more people who helped to kill Manko and Clive, and that person might either be one of us or is still here with us. Outside, there's a rumble, and then we hear the patter of rain on the aluminum roof. We try to clean up the mess. Well, they try because I fainted once already. Dr. Kenny does most of the work. He's the obvious choice based on his medical background, but also because aside him, none of the rest of us possess the presence of mind to do so. The rain pours hard outside, beating against the windows, wind smacking the loose aluminum roofing sheets. Chisom uses our bed sheets to sweep up all the blood, while Dr. Kenny and Inanna put both bodies in the tub and cover them with a duvet. Their noses are tied in blood-stained handkerchiefs, and they look like they did cartwheels in a morgue. As they take the bloody bedsheets out, I go lie on the lobby couch next to Ufama and shut my eyes so I don't see anything, even if the stench of blood follows me there. There's a lot of talking in the hallway. Then they all return, shell-shocked. The door is locked, Inanna says. I'm confused. Locked how? Like, locked, locked, Chisholm says. It's not opening. I follow them back to the little hallway out by the front door, and true to their word, the heavy iron door is fucking locked. We return to the lobby and search the receptionist's desks for keys. Nothing. Dr. Kenny starts to investigate the five-bedroom motel for exits. Inanna looks out the barred windows, trying to get a glimpse of outside through the heavy wind. 
Dr. Kenny exclaims from somewhere inside the motel, then comes stalking back. All the doors are locked, he says, breathing heavily. They're all locked. Windows? Chisom asks. Metal protectors, every single one. Where's our bus? Inanna says, kneeling on the sofa and trying to look out to the parking lot, which is a tight angle from where she is. We all go to her side and peer out, and sure enough, the parking lot is empty. There is nothing but grey sheets of rain and a steady drumming on the roof. The night sky lights up with lightning, and we see nothing in the parking lot but an empty stretch of wet ground punctuated by muddy puddles. What the fuck is happening? Inanna asks. Then the power goes out. So, let's think about this a bit. Nepa makes sure every Nigerian grows up to power outages, right? So, this isn't new to any of us in the lobby. Shouldn't raise any eyebrows, really. But have you ever been locked in, in a strange motel in the middle of night, with two dead bodies under a duvet in a tub down the hall, with no staff and a missing bus, and morning and the promise of light and help still many hours away? So, yes, a few eyebrows are raised when the power goes out. But none more than mine, because maybe I experience this darkness differently. It's the taste of blood on my tongue that gets me first. I think maybe it's the heavy metallic tang of that blood in the air that has found its way into the back of my hard palate through my nose. But no, I think I feel something warm and thick and liquid in the back of my tongue. So I reach into my mouth and I look at my fingers, but can see nothing in the dark. I glance at everyone on either side of me. But they seem frozen, their eyes locked on the empty parking spot outside the window, lightning flashes painting skeleton shadows of the swaying branches on their faces. I feel like they're afraid to look away, afraid they'll see something they don't want to see. Well, I do look away, at the dark lobby behind us. In one of those moments, when the lightning provides the lobby with weak illumination, I see shapes, many, or all one, moving together. And maybe that's a silhouette, and maybe that's something with teeth, and maybe that's something laughing. I look back at my friends, and no one seems to have seen what I have. I should get my phone, Dr. Kenny says, for torchlight. There's a murmur of agreement, and everyone disperses to find their phones. I'm stuck looking out the window, and by the time I remember to tell them that maybe we should all stay together, it's too late. I must have sleepwalked back to our room and whatnot, because I'm suddenly standing there with my phone in hand, the torch lit. But rather than fixate too much on how I got here, I open up my photos and messages, trying to find some trail back to anything that happened in the bus, or when we arrived at the motel, or something. I find stuff that's a day old and completely unhelpful. My network is out too, a red circle backslash where bars should be. The night my father found me in the street, he made me a cup of choco, put a blanket over my legs, and told me that sleepwalking was how my body dealt with trauma. By trying to block out whatever was causing me distress, even if that thing was my very own consciousness, he said it was probably triggered by a slightly strong fever antibiotic he'd given me the other day. What is trauma? I asked. He patted my head. School tomorrow, dear. Go and sleep. I've taken off my shoes, which is also odd for me because I'm like a serious germaphobe. I find socks in my backpack and wear them, wiping blood from my foot. I must have stepped in more of it on my way down. I return to the lobby, and Inanna, Ufoma, and Chisoma are there, with their phone touches on, 
passing a bottle of something that smells heavily of ethanol and drinking straight from it. There's a candle burning on the coffee table. Chisholm is smoking another blunt, lighting up the darkness. Delay much? Chisholm says. Small thing would have thought you found a way out. Where's Dr. Kenny? I ask. They look at each other. We thought he was with you, Inanna says. We thought maybe... You two were frolicking, Chisholm says. What? You, I say. And then dread comes over the women's faces. Oh God, oh God, oh God, Ufama says, and dashes off into the hallway, screaming, Kenny! The three of us look at one another and go after her. Ufama, stop! Inanna is saying, don't go there! We follow her into the hallway, but instead of going with them into the guys' room, my feet are drawn back to the bathroom. I open the door, pointing the beam of my torch to the white circles of red on the tiled floor. I tiptoe in and, I don't know why, sweep the plastic curtain of the tub aside. A scream erupts from down the hallway. The duvet is there, but the bath is empty, smudges of blood and other body fluids painting its inside like an ice cream bowl barely licked clean. I leap out of the restroom and race to the bedroom to find three stricken women standing there, hands to mouths, trying not to look at the layout before them and failing. Manko and Clive are laying on the bed, the growing stiffness of their limbs clear by the way they seem unnaturally crooked. Manko's fingers are clamped over Clive's shriveled dick in a lethargic hand job, while his teeth are clamped over the penis of Dr. Kenny, who lies across the other two men, parallel to the headboard, stripped of clothes, so that we can see clearly the line where blood flows from his neck and pulls into the bedsheet and his silent green, teeth visible through the absence of his cutaway lips. The odors of old and new death are prevalent, and no one can breathe. Everybody, out, I say, herding them towards the door. Out, out, out! I shut the door behind me and shove everyone back to the lobby. Ufoma and Inanna go into a corner, huddling together and shivering like the rain is in the room. Chisum takes over Inanna's role as official pacer and starts to smoke a new joint. Something or somebody is trying to kill all of us tonight, I say, as if it needs to be said. We must find out before money or we die. We make new rules. No more leaving each other until morning. Everyone gets a weapon. We go together to get the only ones we can find from behind the bar. Two knives and a cricket bat. Chisum, who's the strongest of us, grabs the bat. Inanna and I get a knife each because Ufoma, when offered, held it like one will hold a book, something to cherish, not something for destroying. We lock the bedroom and toilet doors and huddle together in the darkness of the lobby for what seems like hours, but when I check, it's only about 30 minutes. I need to pee, Chisum says, and starts heading for the one shred restroom. No, I say, rising to block her in the darkness. No, nobody goes anywhere. What do you mean, I should piss on myself or what? No, no, I say. You either don't go, or we all go together. We move in a huddle, like a school of fish, arms linked, our bare feet slapping the tiles. We're midway down the hall when someone stumbles, or someone bumps into us, or we bump into someone, I don't know which. All I know is our legs buckle together, and we crash into one another and fall. Our phones and weapons skid in various directions. 
lights scattering all over the walls and tiles. Someone yells, someone screams, someone answers their scream. I think I slam my head too hard. My heart does a double take. I think I pass out a bit. I open my eyes and it's completely dark. I am alone and my cheeks, fingers and chest are frozen. My body feels sticky from being on the floor so long and my hair sticks to my face. I feel around me for something. My phone, my friends, a weapon. I find neither, but realize I'm sitting on a rug, which means I must be in one of the rooms. I spend a minute or two trying to decide if I should rise or continue to play dead. It takes me a while to realize there is no longer the drumming of rain on the metal roofing sheet above, and there are faint sounds of early morning, chirping birds. I think I'm in a small corner at the head of the bed. The corner smells damp and horrible, like something died here. The copper smell of blood still hangs heavy in the air and I feel like I will puke if I smell it for too long more. I hear footsteps in the hallway and then rattling, someone opening doors and inspecting rooms. The person moves cautiously and when they get to my room, they push the door open, softly. I hold my breath, listening to my heart thud in my head. The figure walks in, a silhouette with a long cricket bat in one hand and the clear outline of a knife in the other, poised to strike. I freeze solid, trying to act like I'm a cabinet or something, but the figure comes right for me, moving as if it already knows where I am. Then suddenly, it is standing in front of me, reaching out and turning on a torch. A phone torch. Belinda, Ufoma says. Then she gasps and drops the phone and everything in her hand stifling a scream. For the first time since I woke up, I can see myself by the torch's light. My arms are covered in dried blood. My clothes stick to my body, not with sweat, but blood. Oh my god, Ufama says, retreating slowly, picking up her bat and knife. What did you do? I... My head is spinning. I... She turns and runs out of the room. I pick up the torch to follow her. And just when the beam sweeps under the bed, I see them, lying with their faces to me, accusatory, green, because their lips have been sliced clean off, and their blood is soaked into the rug, and that's where that damp, metallic smell is coming from. Chisum's light-skinned face, now painted by artful slashes of blood. Inanna, her everlasting skull, now made permanent. Lying next to them is my knife, bloody and used. And beside it, a lump of flesh, a mound of thinly sliced transparent skin that can only be one thing, a collection of lips. I lean over to the side and retch, vomiting everything I've had in the last day. My tongue tastes of blood again, of ethanol, of everything bad and bitter. As I lie there spilling my guts into the rug, I'm thinking if I know who I am anymore, if I know what I'm capable of. And all I can think of is walking down the streets of my childhood neighborhood in pajamas at midnight. There is a sound in the distance, of keys. I pick up the knife and torch and follow it, navigating the hallway on jelly legs until I'm behind Ufoma. She is fiddling with the front door, trying various keys, struggling to do so while holding the second knife. I stand there, staring at her back, her phone in my one hand, torchlight on my bloody knife in the other. I don't think anything of it until she turns and yelps when she sees me. 
Please, she's saying, please just let me go. I won't tell anybody, I promise. I'm not, Ufama, please listen to me. I did not. She just stares at me with eyes wide, breath audible. Just open the door, I say. I'll shine the torch for you. She resumes her key trial, slower, warier. After what seems like eternity, one key turn gives a satisfying snap and the door swings open. Dawn's air has never felt so pleasant, the smell of wet dust so welcome. Ufoma stumbles out first, then turns to face me again, keeping her back away from me, like a cornered animal. We step into the mud of the parking lot, the scant light of dawn sufficient to see each other well enough for the first time. She looks battered, wet from the sweat of the task. I must look like a homicidal maniac with the blood all over me. My body aches hard in places I don't remember straining. I remember feeling this tired, that cold night, when my feet began to hurt after my father's hot chuckle. So, what will you do with me now? Ufama asks. What will I do? With her? With myself? I don't know, I say. I, I don't know. We stand there, watching each other, both of us a knife each, as if in a face-off. I realize her knife has streaks of wiped blood on it as well, which is strange, because why should it be? Where did you find the keys? I ask. She looks at the keys as if recognizing them for the first time. I'm not really sure. I don't know if I found them or someone else did. They were just there. When she looks up, she's frowning slightly. Her eyes dart across me as if she's trying hard to look at me and not something else. I turn and look behind me to see what catches her attention. It's our bus. It's still there, but parked almost out of sight, almost to the side of the building where no one can see if looking out of any window of Motel 1941. Which is weird, because that will mean someone came and reparked it just for the sole purpose of no one seeing it. But what is weirder? I don't even drive, because I never learned. I look down to Ufama's phone in my hand. The network's still out, so we technically can't call for help. But something prompts me, and I open the phone's settings and look at the mobile network. Switched off. As I thought. I toggle it back on, and the network bars appear, one by one. I turn around, and Ufama is standing right before me, her breath on my face, a wild look in her eyes like I've never seen before. Her hands drop, and she drives her knife into my belly. I feel the cold steel when it touches my insides. You should not have woken up, she says, as she lets go, and I clutch at the handle sticking out of my abdomen, surprised at the amount of blood I have pouring onto my jeans. I'm looking at the knife, looking at her, at the knife, at her. I'm suddenly sitting in the mud. Ufama stands there, regarding me. Why? I find myself asking, searching for breath. He and Clive were fucking, she says, sitting down on the wet ground next to me, her shoulders drooping. I found them in the restroom. I didn't do it on purpose, you know? I was just too angry. I was vibrating. Manko hit his head when I pushed him. It was Clive who said we should make it look like in those American slasher films, you know, where it's like someone else is doing all the bad things. Manko's lips were the easiest thing to cut, so we cut it. 
but I couldn't trust Clive, you know, and the knife was nearby at the bar. So when he got back from reparking the bus, I did him too. Can't go around enjoying life after fucking my almost husband, you know. I stare at her, my vision cloudy, not sure if it's out of anger or something else. A post-rain wind blows humidity our way. A rooster crows somewhere. It's getting brighter. Dr. Kenny knew, she continues, about Manko and Clive, and also that I wasn't pregnant. He was going to talk. He had to go. Best thing for the world, you know. It was an idiot and a perv. We sit in silence. The only thing between us are our breaths. How did you know? I ask. About me. She blinks. You don't know? I shake my head. You were always sleepwalking at the lodge, Belinda. I'm awake most nights. I see you all the time. I call you sometimes and you don't even answer. And you do things, say things. And remember you told me once that story about your father? I just guessed you had enough of the right stresses. Weed, chisom's fumes, some alcohol, Ufoma's drugs. I didn't even have to plan anything for you. Chisom did nothing wrong, I say. And Inanna was your best friend. They were going to talk to the police. She frowns for a bit, as if convincing herself that she did the right thing. I can't go to prison, Belinda. Manko was a good chance, but I still have a life to live. There are pinpricks gathering at my fingertips now, starting to lose sensation. The knife is beginning to hurt, and I can't look at my blood anymore. Don't worry, Ufama is saying, smiling, rising and dusting her bum as if we've just concluded a picnic. They will say you took your life after killing everybody. It makes sense. I ease my body down onto my side, the sand sharp and wet on my cheek. I breathe through my mouth and try to contain the burning in my belly. I've always hated you, I say to Ufama. You better hope I die. You better hope. Ufama smiles a shy smile, nods. I like you, Belinda. I'm hoping maybe we will meet again somehow. She walks away, her bare feet crunching the sand. There's the sound of keys clinking, then a fiddle, the creak and slam of the bus door. The engine starts, revs, and I hear the tires roll away until I can hear them no more. I lie there for a long time, until the sun comes out, before I start to go faint. I hear voices, distant, inquiring, questioning. Maybe I'm asleep, or awake or dead, or alive, or both. I don't know. But the one thing I know is that if I stand up from this place ever, there is somebody who is going to die. Suyi Davis Okungwara is a Nigerian writer of science fiction, contemporary and dark fantasy, and crime fiction. His work has appeared in Lightspeed, Fireside, Podcastle, The Dark, Mothership Zeta, Aminana, Ozzy, Brickmoon Fiction, amongst other magazines and anthologies. He's an MFA candidate in creative writing at the University of Arizona and has worked in editorial at Podcastle and Sonora Review. He lives online at suyudavis.com and tweets at IamSuyudavis.